Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. On today's show, I spoke with Tim McCourt. He is the Senior Managing Director and Global Head of Equities and FX Products at CME Group. Uh, that is a mouthful. Uh, but one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Tim was because uh, he is in charge of their cryptocurrency futures. So CME uh, is the world's largest futures exchange, and they've had um, futures contracts on Bitcoin since 2017 and on Ether, uh, which came along a couple of years later. I remember being a reporter at Bloomberg News and when CME, when they announced that they were going to have a futures contract on Bitcoin, it was really big news. Uh, it, it sort of gave a lot of legitimacy to Bitcoin and uh, was seen as a sort of institutional play on Bitcoin and getting exposure um, to Bitcoin for more conservative investors out there who may not want to go out and buy it, um, you know, on the spot market, but would want to um, dabble in it on a regulated exchange like CME. So we talked all about that. Um, we talked about their their Bitcoin futures contract. It's it's has very good volumes in November. It's kind of reaching uh, some of the peaks that it's hit um, in past years when um, it was more of a bull market. Um, the amount of open contracts in their uh, Bitcoin futures uh, complex is is at, a, is at 4.1 billion dollars. So they're doing very well. Um, we also talked about Tim's uh, experience at JP Morgan, where he was a trader for uh, 10 years from 2000 to 2010. So he not only went through the September 11th attacks while there, but also the um, global financial crisis in 2008. Um, we talked about just risk management and about you know what what crypto brings to the broader finish, traditional financial world. Uh, we also talked a little bit about he's on the board of uh, CME Ventures, which is their investment arm. So they invest uh, in Series A and B rounds for startups. Um, so it was a really great conversation. Uh, I've, I've known CME folks forever, and uh, it was really nice to talk to Tim. So with all that being said, let's get to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Hey, Tim, how you doing? Hey, Matt, doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you. Uh, we were just speaking about it. I feel like uh, we're getting into the part of December where I just want to kind of crawl in a cave and not come out until, you know, springtime. <laughs> so <laughs> doing, uh, you know, Monday to Friday right now has been a bit of a challenge. But uh, how's that going for you? Yeah, I mean, same. It's, you know, 2023 seems like been a, a crazy year. It seems like the years are getting crazier and crazier these days. Certainly flown by. Also ready to, uh, you know, take some time off here at the end of the year, try to relax a little bit. Uh, but certainly, uh, I agree with you. You know, I, I feel like we're, we're not meant to be doing this grind this yeah. time of year. So it'd be good to, good to get a little relaxation in. Yeah, for sure. And uh, are you in Chicago today? Uh, I am in Chicago. Yeah. So, uh, you know, beautiful day here in Chicago today. Um, you know, been here all week, some, uh, some meetings here. We have a holiday party tonight. So uh, looking oh, forward nice. to spending some time with the team out here. At CME, and uh, really looking forward to it. Yeah, please say hi to everybody. Say hi to Terry and Lori and uh, Anita and all those folks for me. I, m I miss those guys. Absolutely, I'll give them your best. Okay. Um, so yeah, I thought it would be interesting and fun to kind of start with. Um, I know I've covered you guys at Bloomberg News. For people who don't know, I covered the CME group for many years. Um, it was a big part of my beat. And I, I learned quickly that I'm, no, I'm not going to ask you about prices at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
I do remember that we we could talk about what you guys are seeing in the markets and sort of like um, maybe a broader, higher level market analysis. So, you know, you're overseeing, you're the global head of equities and FX products, fixed income products for CME. So I, I wondered... Um, what is your your take on the broader economy now and and any trends like are we are things going in an upward trend are we kind of staying flat going down like what what do you are you seeing anything from the activity on on the CME markets and maybe what you're hearing from your bigger customers Yeah it's a great question and, and Matt you're right you know here at CME my remit expanded back in June where I now uh, I'm global head of all the financial products here at CME group which cover equities, interest rates, foreign exchange, cryptocurrency, OTC clearing, as well as our cash platforms offering uh, EBS and broker tech. Uh, so, we, so we certainly have an interesting vantage point on the market and a lot of the interactions between asset classes. And I think the one consistent theme that we've been seeing all year in the market, and I think will continue as we head into 2024, and that is risk management matters. Uh, certainly, the uncertainty in the market is increasing. The need to manage your risk is becoming ever more important for clients, for market participants. And with that uncertainty continuing on the horizon, you know the price of not hedging, the cost to yourself, your portfolio, your P&L of not managing that risk more assertively, more precisely, really starts to hurt, you know, in, in some of these markets where you can't be lazy about it. Risk management is critically important for all participants. And that is something we see across all the asset classes. And when so you let me look, jump in there real quick, yeah. just for folks that aren't too familiar with this, what you're talking about is in the futures market. Um, let's say you're worried um, about in the government bond market, let's say in the treasury market, uh, you might be worried that the, the treasuries you hold, uh, the treasury bonds that you're earning a yield on, um, might go down in value, right? Let's say the uh, Fed keeps rise, or raising interest rates, right? So if the Fed raises interest rates, that typically means the bonds out there in circulation go down in value, correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So if you're worried about in a rising rate environment, you would want to hedge. So you would go and and buy, or you would you would actually sell futures, right, on the CME so that you're you're selling, so you're shorting the market. So in case the, the those treasuries you own do go down in value, the short contracts that you have on the CME go up in value, so you're protected. So that that's in essence kind of what you're talking about there with risk management, right? That's correct. And you know, regardless of what what sort of natural position you might be holding, if you're a long holder or a short holder, yeah, I mean the point is simply putting is as these assets and these markets are continuing to move around. Futures are a great vehicle just to protect yourself or inoculate you against some of those moves. Uh, and even if it's in other class, you know, asset classes, say you may have uh, a, a long equity portfolio. And if you think the market might get a, a bit turbulent or you would think that maybe there's a sell off coming, futures are a great way just to, you know, sell some E-mini S&P or NASDAQ futures against it. And you can protect your portfolio and then trade out of the futures when you think maybe the market's calmed down or maybe you want to get back into it. And there are ways you can do it without having to liquidate that physical position that you're holding, whether it be the treasury, the equities, uh, you know, it's, it's just a great way to manage that risk. And I think historically in, in these markets, the impetus wasn't there to be as on top of it. And certainly what we've seen with the likes of some of the, the events that have unfolded, not even just 2023, but the last few years, 
the it's really important that the market participants are managing that risk, hedging, being thoughtful about it, and having a plan in place before you need it. Uh, and that's certainly something that we're seeing. Uh, and and Matt, I think going back to your sort of question around the, the macro environment, what are we seeing trends in the market? Is the reason why we think some of this uncertainty is not going away is if you think about the interest rate market, you know we've seen very um, fast and uh, increasing uh, change of pace, you know, with respect to the interest rate rises that we've seen here in 2023. And what's interesting is you look out for those listeners. There's a, a tool on our website called you know the CME Fed Watch, and you could go and look at what the probabilities of the Fed actions are for interest rates based on futures trading activity. And you can see that the market thinks there'll be a handful of interest rate cuts next year, maybe starting around the May meeting. What's interesting is you could also see, even if the market thinks rates are going down in the second half of next year, they also disagree on the size of those cuts. Is it a quarter? Is it 50 basis points? So even if the market is directionally aligned, they still disagree on the size or the action. And even that uncertainty on some of those moves we'll see in, we're certainly seeing you know continued seemingly record high equity markets. Uh, at some point, market participants think there will be a, a mean reversion in those markets. Uh, can, the, can the market continue to go up? These are all things on the horizon that when you look at the tension between the strong employment numbers that we still have, inflation, GDP, like all of these macro factors are creating some tension amongst themselves about what will the Fed do, what will be the interest rate policy going forward, and that's going to affect equity, FX, interest rate markets, even the physical markets where people have real, you know, cost of capital and borrowing costs. So yeah. we think this uncertainty is only going to to to, to increase, and people need to be more uh, more precise about managing that risk. Yeah, and. It's kind of cool when you understand how these like markets work and interact. Um, it, it makes sense of like there's a treasury rally going on right now, right? And there's a lot of people out there buying treasuries because they are at an interest rate and a yield that's high. And if the Fed's going to cut rates, then the, you know, then the new round of bonds that are going to be coming out will have lower rates. So people want to buy the, the, the you know, the high coupon bonds. And so um, you can kind of see what the market thinks is going to happen by those sorts of indications, like the treasury market is rallying, the prices are going up because people want to buy to lock in those high interest yep. rates. Um, and then, but, um, and then you mentioned, you know, and I, th I wanted to ask you about this as well, because I did see today that the S and P is just about at the year, yearly high that it hit this, this year. Um, uh, inflation is, you know, obviously a draw or it's a, it's a drag, um, but you mentioned employment numbers are pretty good. It, it, and it feels to me like um, the numbers in the economy, broadly speaking, are pretty good. But I feel like the sentiment of people out there is, is that the economy is not doing well. And I, I wonder, um, is that, do you think, just because of inflation, because, you know, gas prices are higher, a lot of places, you know, food is up. Is there, but it seems like there's a disconnect. And I wondered. Do you guys have any insight into that or like any of your markets that like can get into that? Or is that just kind of like a more like a consumer psychology sort of question? No, that's an interesting point. I definitely think it's a little bit of the latter where it's more of the consumer psychology question. And I agree with you. You know, if you look at the the market levels, interest rates, GDP, more like you know, some pretty good indicators out there. Inflation, you know, is, is still is still persistent, uh, but it's maybe subsided a little bit from where we were not too long ago. But I think to your point, I think people 
in their day to day with rising prices, with, you know, whether it be rising rents, gas prices, or just even the, the cost of day to day activities, food, things like that. I think people are feeling that increase. So they make that connection that it feels like not strong or that the, some of these markets that, you know, it may not with the S&P about 4,600, they may still think like, oh, you know, it's, it's not a great market out there just because things are more expensive. So I think it's a, a psyche or a psychology um, factor for, for the market. But what's interesting is if you look at the market more broadly, you know, what was it last week, we saw a, a tremendous amount of activity in the markets when the CPI number came in, what, like 0.1 different than the expectations. It also doesn't take much around these, these indicators to move the markets. Um, and I think there's a little bit of maybe nervousness or uneasiness because some of these things, the way people feel versus what they see in the indicators of their market levels themselves, you know, I think are at odds. So it doesn't take much uh, to get some of the markets moving as people are, I think, wrestling with this, this sort of tension. Yeah. And just lastly on this, um, you know, in terms of volumes and, and contracts and you, you have such a broad remit, you know, you're, you're watching over pretty much the global market. Um, and for people who don't know, CME is the biggest futures market in the world. So when, you know, Tim says that he's got like responsibility for FX and treasuries and, you know, equities and crypto, like, you know, this is a big deal. Um, but anyway, are you seeing any um, inflows or outflows or anything in, in certain markets that, are, that would give you guys any indication of where like the big players out there are positioning themselves or where they think things might be going? No, that's a good question. Hard to say um, or sort of reverse engineer as a function of trading activity or open interest, what, you know, to derive what the client's view might be or what sort of uh, exact trading view they're trying to express. But what is interesting is if you look at the volume growths, very strong November uh, for the rates markets, where we did almost 17 million contracts a day for the interest rate complex. And, you know, open interest in some of the products continues to grow, where if you look at uh, treasury futures, you know, doing almost I think it's a near record pace of almost 6 million futures contract for the year and a record open interest of over 21 million contracts just a few, a few days yeah. ago. Wow. And we also are having more and more participants come to our market. You know, equities is, is, is also doing fairly well. That market, the volatility has come down a little bit this year. So not surprising volumes a little bit lighter. Uh, than maybe they were in, in 2022. But even in, in the equity markets here at CME, we're still doing, uh, you know, a little over 6.7 million contracts a day. So the volume is increasing, the open interest is increasing, the activity is increasing across all the asset classes. And I think the other thing you're seeing, which is more interesting, goes to my points around risk management, we're also seeing very strong and continued interest in all of our options on futures here at CME as well. You know, we have futures, but we also trade a tremendous amount of options here at CME with some of our equity options, having record months back-to-back -back for August, September, and October, uh, doing almost 1.9 million contracts, I believe, in November across all of our equity index contracts for options. And you look at some of the things like we have, like SOFR options, which have replaced the Eurodollar options. All these options are growing. And the one thing I can say, regardless of 
direction or trying to you know ascertain what what clients think the movement of the market will be the fact that you're seeing this continued growth of options means they are expressing more views across more strikes more maturities they are managing their risk much more they're trying to be precise about where on the term structure they may be trading or how far out they're going so options tend to be much more of a risk management vehicle and futures maybe more the, the, the vehicle of choice to express if you just thought that market was going to go up or down. Yeah. The fact that you also have options uh, significantly increasing in activity alongside futures, it, it's a, to me, it's a both a increased risk management and people expressing more views in the market with futures, but hard to say if they think it's going up or down. And I think that activity in and of itself is a bit of a signal, right? Um, that means people are putting money into the market and, and expressing views, whatever they are. And I guess... If it was flat month over month or going down, you know, that's where you would maybe get a little worried about what would be coming economically uh, in the bigger picture. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. And then so speaking of that, I noticed um, you guys like getting into the Bitcoin stuff that you guys are doing in the crypto world. Like uh, I think your your futures volume in November for Bitcoin futures was around 70 billion, which um is, is is near a high, I think. Uh, and, and I was looking back and it looked like kind of at the height of the bull market uh, a couple of years ago in 2021, that, that that monthly volume, you know, October 2021 was around 100 billion in, in um, November, it was more like 80. So we're kind of getting to that, that volume level that we saw two years ago when prices were much, much higher. Um, so congratulations on that, first of all. And do, do you think... Um, you know, again, like with the market sentiment, are people just getting positioned here or what, what do you hear from customers about why they're coming back into the market now? You know, so what's interesting, Matt, is we got involved uh, back in cryptocurrency in 2016 when we introduced the Bitcoin reference rate and we launched the Bitcoin futures in December of 2017. So it's wild to think we've been at the Bitcoin futures game now for almost six years, right? The yeah. six year anniversary is, is just about 10 days away here. I was, I, it's funny, I just, uh, I was looking at your LinkedIn page and you had a, a thing about, um, it was the four year anniversary of your Bitcoin futures. <laughs> yeah, and here <laughs> we are two, two years, years ago, later, right? You know, right. it's like, like our Bitcoin futures is a kindergartner now, you yeah. know, turning six, right? And. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's when you look at the activity we've seen in November, I think it reinforces not only the sort of the, the maybe the reemergence of some of the players in this space, but also people embracing CME's value proposition for cryptocurrency where we're, you know, we're a market leading provider of cryptocurrency derivatives across Bitcoin and Ether. We're the regulated venue offering regulated products. We have deep liquidity, a tremendous amount of trading and price discovery and risk management that's happening. And then you sprinkle in sort of this movement of Bitcoin to now what above 43,000 today. Uh, and we saw a very strong volume last month in November, almost 50,000 contracts across the complex here at CME which I think was up 10 or 11%, say, versus October. But also what I think maybe I'm a little bit more excited about is open interest. You know, those people actually holding a futures contract overnight or day to day. So they're not in and out, just maybe uh, trading on a more speculative nature. But open interest averaged almost 128,000 contracts across the complex. And that was up 
like 50 or 60 percent versus October. Right. So the fact that in yeah. one month you have, you know, an increase of people holding positions by 50, 60 percent uh, in this market is great. I think it speaks to people want to use a regulated product to access this market and speaks just to the ability of CME over the last the last six years to really carve out a leadership position uh, for the market around cryptocurrency, supporting institutional clients with those regulated products in a in trusted, transparent manner. I think it's becoming more and more important in the crypto space. Yeah, I, I had it that your open interest is about $4.1 billion worth of contracts in, in Bitcoin. Um, you know, we've been through, like you mentioned, you guys have been in this uh, since 2017, basically, or you had the reference rate in 2016. But, you, you know, th there's a couple of bull and bear market cycles there. Um, and I know you've only been in this, this position a little while, but maybe you, there's some institutional knowledge you have about, like, are you... Um, are you now getting a different class of of customer that's coming to you for your cryptocurrency uh, contracts uh, than you did before, or is it sort of the same group, but maybe they're just putting more money into it? Or, or how, how would you characterize that? Yeah, so certainly what we've seen uh, over the years, I would say, generally speaking, we tend to be more attractive to the institutional community. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing I, I kind of caveat around that when also think when we're talking about crypto, the institutional community also includes the sort of advent of crypto-focused hedge funds or more crypto-native trading firms and asset managers, right? So it may not necessarily be the same institutional crowd that we see in equities or rates or uh, foreign exchange, but it still is institutions, institutional flow, professional flow. It's not sort of you and I trading in our retail account, right? It's a very sort of sophisticated yeah. community of participants. And even those retail participants, broadly speaking, that we have at CME tend to be the sophisticated, active individual traders. Um, so the, I would say the personality hasn't changed too much over the years, but we have seen more and more customers adopt the product. You know, it's taken a lot of firms, uh, you know, several years to get the internal approvals to, to trade crypto or to deploy their strategies. A lot of the firms want, you know, a year or two of back testing of strategy or sort of watching it in production, so to speak. So we're seeing a lot of firms come online. And I think that the exciting thing for me, you know, is not too long ago where you really then had some of the asset managers getting into the mix with the introduction of futures-based Bitcoin ETFs mm -hmm. in the US uh, with the likes of ProShares product that's out there. Then you have others like Valkyrie and Bitwise who have moved to futures-based uh, products for Bitcoin. We have some Ether future-based uh, future ETFs as well. So if you think about it, you have some of those like wholesaler institutional clients taking those last steps to figure out how to bring crypto in their product wrappers to market. So that is something that has continued. It's picked up pace. The sort of client pipeline and demand we're still getting is great. You know, we're having a lot of clients across all segments reach out just like, how do I trade crypto futures at CME? How do I trade more? How do I trade options? And of course, we always get the question, can you trade more crypto futures at CME? Which is always a great question, but for now we are focused where we have that regulatory clarity and certainty. So just Bitcoin and Ether for now at CME, uh, okay. but in general, very strong demand from clients. And I would say the last several months, uh, the maybe enthusiasm is, is picking up a bit. The price always helps with it, but I also think it's chatter of the, the spot Bitcoin ETF coming online in the U.S. maybe getting approved would be great for the ecosystem and great for our markets. Yeah. I think it's a combination of, uh, you know, maybe coming out of uh, 
the, the bear market for crypto, some enthusiasm, and people just continue to get more and more comfortable with, with the asset class. Are you guys seeing like pensions or insurance companies come to you for, for exposure to crypto? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, we don't always have complete line of sight for some of that uh, part of the asset management community in terms of, we, I can't see exactly what client is holding what position. Right. Uh, so I ask because that's, to me, that seems to be like the most traditional, maybe the most conservative sort of yeah. side of institutional investment. No, exactly. I would say so. We've had, I would say we've had some conversations with, you know, pensions and insurance. I think sometimes it's maybe out of curiosity. I think some are trying to figure out, especially if you look at the insurance space, should they have longer term products? And, you know, they're always looking for product innovation as well, if you think about some of that space. So they're certainly engaging, um, but I, I I don't necessarily know for sure one way or another if any of them have, have, have actually pulled the trigger with futures just yet. Okay. And then you mentioned um, that you're, for the moment, sticking to Bitcoin and Ether futures. Um, one thing uh, listeners might not know, um, the, the contracts at CME are cash settled. So if you like went and bought a, a Bitcoin futures contract at CME and you went long, if you held that to expiration, you wouldn't actually receive Bitcoin. You would receive um, the cash difference between what whatever price you bought at and wherever the price settled. So you would just get that in cash. Um, I'm curious if are you having any discussions about um, a physically settled product where investors would potentially would would be be able to actually get Bitcoin if they held to expiration? You know, it is it is something where I'd say the the topic of physically delivered futures certainly has ebbed and flowed over the years. The way we approach it at CME is we don't see it as an either or choice. Uh, we think there's room for both in the market. You've seen that in, in some other cla uh, asset classes as well. Uh, but our current our current contracts, as you point out, Matt, do financially settle against the Bitcoin reference rate and the Ether reference rate, which we we maintain with our partner CF Benchmarks. Um, and the physical products, though, I would say we we we're getting increasing questions from clients. I think similar to my other comments about the the upwelling of enthusiasm that is sort of resurging here. Yeah, uh, but we'll continue to engage with clients and see if it makes sense uh, for them. How would it work with our existing clearinghouse uh, operations and the way we trade on the exchange? So we're you know we, we're talking to clients about it. No imminent plans, but I would say it's something that has picked up in terms of client interest uh, the last few months. Uh, and it had been maybe a, a topic that had gone cold a little bit before that. So engaging with clients, uh, but certainly that is something we could look at because uh, it's still in the ether and, and Bitcoin lane, so to speak. Yeah, and it's it's complicated as well, right? It's um, you, you might not think so, but custody in Bitcoin and and digital assets is is tricky. And I know, I think you know your biggest competitors may probably ICE, right? Intercontinental Exchange, they, as far as I can see haven't had much success in their effort to um, physically deliver Bitcoin with their backed, um, uh, you know, they, they had this, they spun out a company called Backed, um, and that was, they were um, offering physically delivered Bitcoin futures. Um, so I, I know you probably don't want to talk about ICE a lot, but am, am I missing something? I'm pretty sure that that didn't really ever take off. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Matt. And, you know, What's interesting and just my observation, the way we think about it is, you're right. I mean, there are challenges around custody and holding it um, with respect to the, the underlying digital asset. So I think the, the, the area that we dive into with clients is, what is the right way to do it? 
do you want that sort of single point delivery uh, with sort of like, which is the way I would maybe describe the backed approach is that you have to custody there to trade the future. Or if you look at some of our markets in other asset classes, say like metals or grains, do you have more like a consortium of custodians or multiple delivery points such that you can allow people to custody where they want at their choosing mm-hmm. and then maybe pair off via delivery receipts? So those are the things that we're trying to figure out. And I think my general approach to it is similar to the way we even design the index underlying the financially settled future is it needs to be a solution that's flexible and can flex as the underlying market itself figures out what it wants to do with custody. Uh, you know, that's something that I think will continue to evolve. So your solution has to has to sort of flex with that over time or meet clients kind of where they're at if they prefer holding at custody A or custody B or maybe even uh, self-custodying uh, and holding their own keys and, and wallet. You kind of need to make that work for everybody versus making someone only show up at one delivery point or one warehouse or one custodian. I think that lack of choice may be a a fatal flaw for a product design. Yeah, and it seems like that that, that delivery risk is also something maybe unique to digital assets where if if I'm custodying your your Bitcoin and I know that I have the private key and whatnot— if I screw that up, it's lost forever, right? And it's like you don't lose a, gra- a silo of grain or a barrel of oil as it's going to delivery. They don't just get lost and like disappear. <laughs> so, no, that's right. Yeah, there's, there's certainly complexities in yeah, nuance. There, there is that risk of just like screwing something up somehow where, you know, um, the key is compromised or something happens and, and that they, then you just can't have access to that Bitcoin any longer. So I, 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 that's always struck me as kind of like also just a really kind of sticky part of this whole discussion. Absolutely. And you think about it, you know, the folks in our clearinghouse are, are great here at CME, you know, we're experts in a lot of other physical delivery spaces, but you're right, Matt, where, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies and physically settling Bitcoin and ETH, it just just introduced new things. And the questions that we have internally when we think about the product development are, what part of the risk do we want to assume in our risk management capabilities here? Or how do we partner with custodians who might be better experts at other parts. Like, where do we partner with custodians? Where do we partner around delivery process? How do we maintain those standards versus what do we do sort of in the proverbial four walls inside the clearinghouse? Understanding those risks and where we can serve the needs of clients versus where others uh, may have different preferences and things like that. Figuring that out also is a is a is a big topic for us as as we kick this around internally over the years, uh, and it's not something that we have a clear answer on if we want to be in the sort of the business, so to speak, of managing private keys, right? You know, that's a it's a pretty critical undertaking, and we're not sure that's something we want that responsibility to risk manage, or is that something the client should risk manage on their end, right? Or manage through their custodian. So all great questions, but I think that's sometimes people are like, oh, just just roll out the physical contract, no big deal. And you're like, actually, there's lots of interesting things to figure out first. Yeah, for sure. Um, All right, cool. So I'd love to go back a little bit into your life. Um, Did did a young Tim McCourt think that he'd be the senior managing director, global head of equities and FX products at CME Group? Or what what were you... uh, what were you doing as a kid uh, and, and did, did finance, did you, were you always interested in finance or what, what was your kind of, uh, what, what were you into as a child, as a child? And, and oh, that's what, great. When I, when I was real little, I definitely didn't think I'd be working in finance. I think my first memory of like career aspirations, I wanted to be a chef. 
<laughs> when, I, when I grew up. Um, and then I, think I got a little bit cook? old. Yeah, I, I love to cook. I still yeah, cook all the time. I mm-hmm. uh, love to love love to cook, love to, you know, go out to eat, restaurants, all that. I'm a big, big foodie, big fan of food and cooking. Um, but it's well, definitely a hobby. Between New York and Chicago, you got two great cities there. That's right. Food. That's right. Um, and then it's sort of like in high school and college, I went to Boston College. I was a political science major, you know, liberal arts. I originally thought I was going to go to law school. I wanted to be a lawyer, wanted to maybe go into politics. Mm-hmm. And just sort of like over time... At, at BC, I realized and started doing the math of what it would take financially to go to law school and then maybe sort of what lawyer I'd have to be to pay back that debt on the other side. And I was like, well, I'm not sure this is for me. So this was, I graduated in 2000. So this was sort of the height of, you know, the, the dot-com era was still around, the war for talent between Silicon Valley, tech firms, banks, Wall Street. And I was fortunate enough to get a job at J.P. Morgan as a rotational analyst when I made the decision to go into business uh, versus, say, law school and started at J.P. Morgan this in July of 2000 in one of their rotational analyst programs, got exposed to equity derivatives, fell in love with it, fell in love with the markets. Uh, and sort of like the rest is history, you know, but certainly wasn't something that, a, you know, a, a young Tim McCourt was aspiring to be <laughs> a derivatives guru at the Merck, you know? So, yeah. Um, so you went through, so you're at JP Morgan from, I think, 20, 2000 to 2010, as you said. So, so first of all, there was the September 11th, you know, kind of uh, effect on, on markets and the, the economy. And then you went through, um, you know, the Great Recession and everything, the, the 2008 housing crisis. Um, so you were, you were kind of went through two really tumultuous times there. Um what did you take away from those those experiences? And and uh, as I recall, uh, even you know in New York uh, post nine eleven, I, I moved there in two thousand four. Um, so I'd say from two thousand four to two thousand eight, you know, I, there just seemed to be money flowing in the streets in New York City. Like things were were really crazy. Um, what what was it like being inside J P Morgan during those years? Yeah, I mean, it was it was great, right? To be to be honest, I mean, certainly the the markets were crazy. Uh, I lived in Manhattan for about eighteen years, right? Um, so, having sort of been through a lot, both in the city and in the markets, it was a you know a, a fascinating place to get you know to start my career to learn from others. Uh, you know, at the time and still today, J.P. Morgan was, uh, you know, a preeminent derivatives house for equities. I was learning from some of the the brightest and best minds and what was sort of a, you know, a burgeoning part of finance at the time. Like equity derivatives sort of like was having their moment in that, you know, late 90s, early 2000s and just having sort of a front row seat to seeing how the markets operated from that perspective was, was fascinating. I think that's what's really got me sort of hooked on the markets was the energy, the pace uh, to, you know, the, the the risk management, the risk taking, like all of that was sort of infectious at the time. And what was interesting to, to your to appointment when you're going through, if you think about sort of like maybe like the sort of liquidity and credit stuff that maybe started in summer, fall of 2007 and then into the global financial crisis, then having sort of like a front receipt, seeing some of that momentum come out of the market and you know, the global financial crisis and places like Lehman and Bear going under. And I had friends that worked there and sort of like the impact on 
the industry, but the city itself. And it was, it was really fascinating and sort of wild when you think back to it uh, in hindsight, where some of us even today here, here at CME, when we talk about it, we're like, what's so crazy is absent the last few years, you know, people thought like markets only went one way, right? Like we are markets only went up. Interest rates only stayed at flat, right? And we're like, buckle up, everyone. Like these yeah. things have happened before, but there's almost an entire generations of traders that haven't seen some of this. I was just going to say that there's almost recently. an entire generation of, where interest rates are at near zero, and that's, no, exactly. that's crazy. Exactly. That's it's really crazy. fascinating to, to to see it start the, that risk and that uncertainty come back in. Because like, oh yeah, I've seen this before, um, and it just makes you appreciate that you know the markets as a as an entity sort of as a, a, a sort of you know proverbial living breathing thing it's like they can do some pretty fascinating things and it's very hard to predict what it's going to do you know but but i was very fortunate uh to learn from some great people at jp morgan i loved my time there um, and i look back fondly on it and still keep in touch with a lot of the folks that i started with my career with and some of my mentors from back then so it was great and very fortunate uh, that i had that experience do you remember there was a day uh, in in September or October of 08, I think, uh, Congress didn't pass, like a, it was TARP, I think, uh, and the, like the, the market, the S&P just fell off a cliff. You must have had a hell of a day that day on the equities swaps desk there. Um, oh, I remember, yeah, because I can remember, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had this very vivid memory of like, I think it was one of the few times the trading floors were not tuned to like CNBC, Bloomberg TV, whatever. And it was like C-SPAN and people yeah. watching a vote, right? Yeah. And you watched sort of like the yays and nays happening. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. it became clear it wasn't happening, people were like, it like proverbially hit the fan, yeah. you know? But I was like, whatever it was, I feel like that was a, if you were to chart viewership on like C-SPAN, you know, <laughs> in, in the island of Manhattan, it's got to be an all-time peak that day. Yeah. I feel like. yeah. That was one of the, yeah, that was one of the few times uh, I, I felt it in my gut. Like it just like the, the fear of like watching it on the Bloomberg terminal as the S&P just like it was literally just a straight line down. I think it was several hundred points, maybe even 800 or a thousand. Um, oh, exactly. It reminds us sort of like the proverbial falling knife, right? Yes. You know, yeah. And for wild. the S&P, that's insane. You know, that's yeah. a huge, huge move. Um Okay. And then I wanted to ask, like you were, you were on the equity swaps desk, right? So this is an over the counter product. Um, did you get, obviously part of the financial crisis was, um, you know, exacerbated by credit default swaps and the nature of how that's an, uh, was an unregulated market. And when, when everything kind of got bad, nobody really knew where the risk was. Um, was that in the equity swaps market as well as like some of the other credit derivatives and, and things like that? Yeah, yeah. So I was on the the equity swap desk. It was a Delta One trader. So also, you know, longtime customer seeing me before I worked here, uh, trading futures, ETFs, swaps, you know, cash baskets, everything. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, I don't think it was the same, right? At least from my vantage point at JP Morgan, uh, and then when I was at Royal Bank of Scotland as well, uh, it didn't really see the same thing because the equity swap products, even OTC, were you know with uh, large institutions. They were sort of 
key core exposures to the major benchmark equity index products. Uh, I don't think it was the same sort of structural issues that you saw in maybe some of the credit default swaps or or some of the other factors that led to the financial crisis. Certainly, a lot of that was traded on you know portfolio credit and and things of that nature. So there was always risk that you always have to manage those risks as as a market participant. But what my big takeaway from sort of being a swap trader and sort of seeing the you know global financial crisis and then sort of living through the Dodd-Frank formation was that was one thing that I found so exciting about CME and when I when I moved here uh, in 2013 was you can go from being a participant in the market as a sell side trader at a bank or I can go to the market and help drive some of these innovations and changes. And, you know, how do we get the equity swap market out of OTC to a centralized, lit, cleared venue at CME, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was my source of inspiration for product development, leading the team of what are some of the transactions or the, the transactional handshakes we could bring from the OTC market to the exchange. To me, that was more uh, foundational for me was realizing that I thought the bank's had a, had a tremendous vantage point to that. And then I started looking at the exchange. I was like, as opposed to being a taker of the change, now I can help drive the change. And I think that was like a, a big takeaway for me, almost sort of that epiphany of, hey, like some real foundational things are about to change in these OTC markets. Yeah. Well, going back to that period um, around 2013, I think that's sort of when Bitcoin sort of started to get into the common sort of... Um, common parlance or, or to, to kind of break through. Do, do you remember your first time coming across it and what you thought of it um, back then? Well, it's a good question. Because I, was like, I, bet. I don't I don't kind of remember per se the first time I heard about Bitcoin. I think it was probably more around 2014, like maybe late 2013, 2014. It was definitely at CME at the time where I started hearing more about it, reading, and I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting and exciting. Um, but I wasn't, I still not sort of like, despite leading cryptocurrency saying I wouldn't consider myself like a Bitcoin maximalist or anything like that, or, uh, sort of like believing in the original ethos that some were saying that this is the answer to central banking and financial mm -hmm. crises and stuff like that. To me, I was always more fascinated about like, well, what is it? What is the technology? What is the protocol? Um, that's sort of where I got more interested in it. So I'm like, oh, this could be something. And then as it gained momentum, I was like, oh, this is definitely going to be something. And I was like, hey, see, we should, do, we should get involved. We should do something <laughs> around this. But yeah. sort of more of a slow sort of building interest uh, versus sort of being all in on the craze early on. Now, Matt, I'll be honest, if I had a time machine, I wish I was all in. <laughs> Like yeah. early on, but yeah. maybe an investing and trading perspective. Uh, but I would say more like curiosity that then came into really, really being fascinated by it. Yeah, my son was just asking me that same thing. I was telling him that I've I've been doing this for a long time, and he's like, "Why didn't you buy Bitcoin?" I was like, "Well, I didn't quite get it back then." <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Well, duh. Um, so, and I so. I just got to ask you, this is maybe a funny aside, but I've known Terry Duffy, who's now, you know, the CEO uh, at CME for a long time. And I know for a fact that he did not get crypto at all and thought it was kind of, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but I guess he had to come around at some point because you guys, you know, have these very successful products now. So um, if you see Terry, just let him know that uh, that I remember that he used to be totally anti-crypto and, and thought it was all a bunch of um, hot air. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing him later today. I'll remind him. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Good. Um, one thing about about your past that I liked that that popped out of me was that uh, you were an Eagle Scout. Um, 
What did you do uh, for your Eagle Scout project? Oh, wow. Great question. Yeah. So I'm an Eagle Scout. Uh, I actually became an Eagle Scout when I was 13, right? Which is a little bit younger than most. Um, And my Eagle Scout project was uh, organized a beach cleanup. You know, I grew up on Long Island uh, out in North Babylon, and we did a beach cleanup at a town of Babylon Beach. Uh, we actually did it at Gilgo Beach and Overlook Beach, which are two beaches out there. We did a cleanup and we planted uh, snow fencing and beach grass to help with erosion, which, you know, that was a big, a big topic back sure. in the, the 90s for the, the South Shore beaches of Long Island. Um, and, you know, I was a member of Troop 175 in West Babylon, New York. Uh, they're still around. And yeah, it was a great experience and something that I still remember to and point to. And sometimes, you know, Matt, people ask me, they're like, why do you have it on your LinkedIn profile? I, I mean, I haven't had to circulate my resume in a long time, but it's still on my resume to see me. And I was like, because one, it's something I'm really proud of. Mm-hmm. It's something that was uh, foundational to me as a leader, uh, as a person I'm still you know, committed to, to service and, and volunteering and sort of doing good things. And you know, I, I still have very fond memories of scouting. Um, and it's also something though, that if you find someone else who is an Eagle Scout or was involved in scouting, it's a great connection, you know. So I'm like, why not put it out there? You know, I'm like, I'm not the only Eagle Scout. There's lots yeah. of us out there. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you great. know John Lithian. Yeah. Does have you ever done scouting stuff with him? No, I haven't. But you know, I have to, I have to, I have to bring it up next time I'm with him. Yeah. So we can hit, hey, we can hit a jamboree together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there you go. Um, I was also interested. Um, you are part of the CME Ventures Investment Committee, and that's where you guys. Um, you, you basically invest in startups, right? Uh, and, and kind of in, at seed round level. Um, are you, uh, I'm just curious if you're seeing anything interesting there in the crypto space or, or where, um, you know, wh- where you guys are sort of uh, deciding to put your money these days into, into that area. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm one of the investment committee members for CME Ventures, uh, which is, is a great part of CME. Uh, we typically get involved a little bit later than seed round, maybe like series A, series B, when the companies have okay. a little bit more sort of uh, demonstrated uh, success, let's say, or sort of more viability. We like to partner on proof of concepts with them before we invest, uh, but certainly seeing lots of great ideas. The one thing I will say, though, that's been interesting is even not that necessarily we are uh, ramping up our investments or anything like that. You know, we have a pretty steady portfolio right now. Uh, but always looking, always trying to make sure we have our, our finger on the pulse. I think what I found more fascinating, if I could use that word, was the speed at which some of the VC money almost like holistically has started to dry up around some of the crypto projects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that there's been some tough funding and I think, um, you know, trying to maintain sort of viability, I think it's getting, it's getting a little bit more challenging for, for some of these companies out there, seeing some of them, you know, unfortunately have to shutter or close their doors. Or they, they can't get that additional funding round or they can't, you know, get to that over that that line of, of profitability. And I think that's just a function of the the markets, generally speaking, but also, uh, you know, with some of the some of the other sort of uh, events in the crypto space and some of the things that have happened, you know, it's just yeah. some of the investment money. And just, I could be completely wrong, but just my perspective on no, it. No, I think you're right. Because it's dried up a little bit. Yeah, if you look at, I mean, FTX, for just one example, had had a, a long list of VC investors. Um, I'm sure 
a lot of the crypto credit firms that went under um, did as well. And, and that's just, you know, a little part of what happened. Um, and, no, exactly. yeah. and, 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 you know, notwithstanding the events of FTX and, and crypto, but if you look at it sort of more broadly, like the crypto industry as a whole is, you know, is still relatively early days. And it's not uncommon as new industries and new business and new technologies are coming online that you're going to have sort of these life cycle events where I do also think that some of this could be like the proverbial cleaning out of the underbrush. Uh, you know, some some of the, the bad actors have, have been sort of, you know, markets are efficient. They sort of been, you know, dealt with and sort of run their course and some great things have happened, some bad things have happened. And then it's like, all right, the next phase, like, so what is sort of, what's going to be the next innovation or next company or the next great thing that comes out of it now that some of that is underbrush has been cleared away. You sort of see this life cycle of nature, so to speak, happening in other industries. And I think so, so that's where we are in crypto too. So I think it's not over forever. I just think people maybe hitting a pause button on the funding, people being a little bit more cautious, a little bit more conservative. But I think on balance, that's going to be a great thing for the industry because it means when those next great good ideas or companies come up or the next technology, the next protocol, you know, people will be ready to get, to get reinvolved. So I think it's just sort of cyclical right now, but it seems a yeah, little bit, I, a little bit less enthusiasm uh, than I, a few months back. I agree. I, I think it, it like, it's like a fire, right? The fire goes through the forest and, and burns out things. And then there are certain seeds that need that fire to grow. Um, and I, I hate to be a killjoy, but I, with the prices going up recently, I just don't see a really big foundation for for that. Um, I think you know there's a couple things out there, like you mentioned the the cash, um, the spot Bitcoin ETF, but we've known about that for a very long time. Um, there's a couple other things happening, but I don't know. I just um, I, it, this this rally just feels like it's a price rally to me, and it doesn't necessarily feel like it's got um, a great foundation to it. And I, I'm, I, no, I, I agree. Feels yeah. like it might be fueled, but a little bit by hopes and dreams, right? Yeah. You know, so to yeah. speak. But uh, I think it's true because I think the other thing that we talk about um, here at CME with clients, and you know, we, we've certainly talked about it uh, in the marketplace more broadly, is I think if you look at cryptocurrencies, what's happening is certain like. Last few years, a lot of activity, a lot of hype, a lot of, a lot of participants, and, but it was all sort of speculative trading. Like people were trading the price move. They didn't care what the token was, what the asset was. They were just like buying it at one and selling it at two, right? Or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. It was just sort of getting in on the craze because these things could double, triple, you know, quintuple in value. So it's all speculative. I think what you're seeing more broadly now and why you're still seeing Bitcoin and Ether have staying power is I do think the market and participants foundation are asking, what is the use case? Like what utility does this protocol and therefore, you know, token or coin provide in a way that there is some inherent feature value uh, utility provided to the marketplace? I think people are asking more interesting questions like that. I think that's why you still see interest around things like tokenization or the incorporation of DLT or blockchain technology, uh, so I think people are saying, all right, the spec case is done. What's the use case? Um, and I think that's something that we're seeing the market also collectively sort of noodle on, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, Ether, the use cases there are, there's many, but I, I still don't understand why people don't understand Bitcoin and its value. Because if you look at it at a very basic level, it is a permissionless global payment system, you know, that like, 
that that's huge and and uh it's it's something that you know is is unstoppable and uncensorable and and some people don't like that but you know other people uh it, there's a need for it and and just having that kind of global payment system that is accessible to anybody with a bitcoin wallet you know i, I find that amazing and i'm not sure why people are saying well there's no use case for it like where's the killer app or, or i want to buy a cup of coffee with bitcoin it's like well you know why don't you just you know how about sending money across the world in 10 minutes you know like, i feel like no it's it's i, I so agree it's so fascinating too where the other thing when you think about bitcoin is like the other things that have always resonated to to, to me is not only sort of like the global payment aspect which is fascinating you think of some of those early you know, you probably all find them on YouTube now in these days where it's like, so we're saying like, how fast can I send Bitcoin versus a wire versus like yeah. bringing cash to somebody on a plane, right? And kind of going through, it's like, yeah, 10 minutes I could send uh, money around the world is is amazing. I also am always sort of fascinated by the concept of the, you know, maybe to use an overutilized phrase, but like the banking for the unbanked or like mm -hmm. the portability of wealth, right? When you think about some other parts of the world, if you had to flee and, you, you know, back in the day, it would be duffel bags or suitcases of paper fiat currency. And at least now, if you really need to flee a jurisdiction or a country or something was happening um, that you needed to, to like kind of leave or, or move quickly, take your Bitcoin with you, like mm -hmm. in, your, in your pocket on your phone or just access it from somewhere else. Right. So to me, it's also like this, this idea of like the portability of wealth banking for unbanked. Like, those are things that I think aren't fully tapped into yet, but I think end state, those are some of the things that I always find super interesting about, about Bitcoin itself. Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree. That's a really interesting point. Um, well, Tim, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much um, for, for sharing your time and, and your insights and, and how, what you guys are doing at CME. Um, good luck to you guys uh, going forward. Well, just tell people how they can find out more about you or about what's going on at CME Group. Yeah, Matt, thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed catching up with you. Uh, for any and all information, uh, certainly a great resource is our website, cmegroup.com. Uh, you could always reach out to me. Uh, my email address is tim.mccourt at cmegroup.com. You can also find me uh, on X, formerly known as Twitter, if anyone's still using that, you know, at Tim McCourt, CME. Always happy to engage with, with folks out there, answer questions, whether it's about crypto finance or the exchange more broadly always happy to help cme group is, is is a great place to work it's a great institution and if people are not familiar i just really encourage them to, to head to our website and, and find out all the great things that cme is involved in all right that's awesome thank you tim and have fun at the holiday party tonight all right thanks so much matt okay bye-bye that's it for this episode thanks for joining us and don't forget to rate and follow this show on apple spotify and amazon music Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. <laughs>